Uh, good evening, everyone. Great to see you all tonight and to be uh, led in the sermon, in the service so far by Simon. We've appreciated that, and uh, Hannah and Elizabeth and all the folks and the music and the back. It's great to be here to worship the Lord together and to hear his word. And tonight we are looking at a chapter in the book of Genesis uh, as one of these uh, final chapters that, uh, that Simon started last week to introduce us uh, to the story of uh, Joseph. Uh, now this week we come to chapter 38. But let us just remind ourselves what has happened so far. What did we learn last week? And we were introduced to a young man called Joseph and his dreams that alienated his brothers and his coat and that sort of thing. Uh, then we saw that his brothers, alienated by all this, took it very seriously and planned to murder him. Reuben suggested that they throw him into a pit. He had hoped that if they did that, sometime later he would come back and rescue his brother. When Reuben was absent, Judah came up with another idea and said, let's sell him. This was Judah's idea. And uh, because of that, Joseph became a slave in the land of Egypt. That is the story so far. So what a surprise when you come to chapter 38, because now you're expecting a follow-up. You're expecting to learn what happened to Joseph in Egypt. But this chapter, there's no Joseph. It's an entirely different story. Uh, one commentator calls it a rude interruption to a good story. Uh, well, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's only that if you regard the purpose of Genesis at this point to tell you the story of Joseph, but it's not doing that. It's showing you some themes that run right through the whole book. So it's not just telling you a particular story. It's the themes that are important. And before the story of Joseph is continued, there's some things that need to be fixed up. There are some points that need to be made uh, clear. In this particular story of Judah, uh, it is a story of how he had uh, two sons who both died, and were told they were evil, they were put to death by the Lord, and the, they had a, a custom called leveret marriage, whereby if a man uh, died, his widow if he had a brother in the family, his widow, who would then be destitute, could be helped and provided for by marrying the remaining brother. And that happened when Tamar came along, and uh, Judah had two sons married to Tamar. Uh, but when they both died, he, he got kind of superstitious about it and thought it must be some sort of a jinx or something. He thought this is dangerous, and he refused to marry uh, his third son to her, but he tricked her into keeping waiting 
He could have released her and he, he could have refused and let her marry somebody else. He didn't do that. That is the story of this uh, chapter. And there's lots of interesting innuendos go on through it, and we will see how it ties in with the rest of the book of Genesis. So already you're thinking to yourself, what's that got to do with us? That's a different sort of culture, a different type of tradition than we would actually know about. So how can it speak to us? Well, you can say that uh, uh, traditions and cultures change. Well, you know that. Culture has changed a lot since I was a wee boy in Balamina. Cultures change, let alone over thousands of years. So traditions and cultures change, but the Word of God does not change. And we are told clearly that Scripture is inspired. You notice I was careful with the tense there. Some people say Scripture was inspired. But no, no, no. Scripture is inspired, which means that it's alive. Basically, inspired means God is uh, breathing through it. So, Scripture is actually uh, not something that was inspired years and years and years ago, but it's inspired today. That means that God is working through it, and if God is working through it, He doesn't change, and because it's in His Bible, therefore, it's got something to teach us, something we can learn from, even though the cultures and even though we'd have to, you know, in some of those programs where they do dangerous things, they say, don't try this at home. Well, you could write that over this chapter, don't try this at home. It's, it's describing what happened, not suggesting that this was the right way to do things, far from it. But the themes that we follow here are themes that are important in the whole book of Genesis. And clearly, there is one theme that you cannot ignore in Genesis, and it is so clear in this chapter, and that's why it's important. Sin destroys. Sin destroys. Sin leads particularly to broken relationships. The Garden of Eden was a great place to be. Relationships were perfect. No bad temper. No grumpy people. Even the tigers were friendly. Animals were named by Adam. Relationships were perfect in the Garden of Eden. But sin entered, and sin broke the relationships. And God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And he was speaking to the serpent. Enmity, uh, broken relationships, Cain and Abel, brothers, one murdered the other. And so, sin destroys. Sin brought broken relationships. And what do you find in this chapter? In the previous chapter, Judah is with his brothers. They're all together. They're all following on in the line of Abraham, whom God promised to bless. But in this chapter, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hera. And there's the broken relationship here being followed through this theme. Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside. Adullam is mentioned again in the Bible because David 
when, before he was king, went there to hide from King Saul. I wonder what was Judah hiding from? Why was Judah suddenly separating, breaking the relationships with his brothers and going down to Adullam? Was this his way of coping? Remember in the previous chapter, who was it sold? Well, at least suggested they sell Joseph. It was Judah. He suggested they sell Joseph. Was this his way of coping? We don't know, but we know that he went down away from his brothers and he's now living away from them altogether. Today, broken relationships is a is something that happens in our world, and it's not always to do with sin. Uh, there actually is a museum. This is an aside. There actually is a museum. I was interested to see this. I never heard of this before, but looking, at, uh, looking around the, uh, the internet, there is a museum called the Museum of Broken Relationships. It's in Zagreb. Is that right? Zagreb? in Croatia. And uh, uh, this museum collects all the mementos of different reasons why people have broken relationships. And there's all sorts of reasons, and you can't pin it down to sin. But in the story of Genesis, it is sin that is in the picture. So if you get a chance to look at the Museum of Broken Relationships, I think apparently they have people are asked to bring some memento that reminds them of a relationship they used to have and they run exhibitions and things and they have thousands of people have brought things to them. That was by the way. But uh, for back to our story, we now find that our friend Judah doing what is right in his own eyes. He um, was the one who was in the line of Abraham. Abraham was very careful that his son Isaac would not marry a Canaanite because the Canaanites were under the judgment of God and there were clear warnings that Isaac needed to marry someone who was not a Canaanite. Likewise, Jacob. And suddenly Judah marries a Canaanite, something he was told not to do. Um, he was doing what was right in his own eyes. It simply says, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her. Not very romantic. Just he took her. And it reminds you of that story in Genesis 3 where you get the same theme. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and so on, so she took it saw and took. Samson uh, had a great uh, notion of a Philistine woman, and he said to his father, I I would love to marry her, go on, carry out the usual, you know, negotiations, and I want to marry this woman. And his father said, but she's a Philistine. They're at war with us. And he said, get her, because she's right in my eyes. And the summary of the book of Judges is everybody did what was right in their own eyes. I love gadgets. And quite often, uh, a new gadget comes through uh, the post, whatever, GPS, whatever. 
And I always do the same thing. And I probably always will. I open it up with excitement, unwrap it, throw the packaging away, and start to get it to work. Then half an hour later, I say, Audrey, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And she says, did you check the instructions? So back to the bin, get the instructions out, and start all over again, and then it works perfectly. And you know, that's just for a gadget. But human beings are a lot more complex than a gadget. Human beings, you need a guidebook to know how to live a life as a human being. And Abraham was given guidance, and Jacob. But now Judah has thrown all that overboard. He's gone away and married a Canaanite that he was told not to do. And uh, he's like a person opening the gadget and ignoring the instructions. But God has given us a guidebook of instructions. And the closer we keep uh, to his word, the better we will be able to live lives that will be in keeping with what God wants best for us. When we simply throw away the guidebook and do like Judah what we want, what we think, what we feel, then we will be wandering away from what is best for us as ordained by God. So Judah does what's right in his own eyes and marries a Canaanite. And then, to move on, this led the broken relationships, first of all, and now we've got broken promises. He told uh, Tamar, the daughter-in-law, remain as a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, and then you can marry him. And he had no intention of fulfilling that promise. There's a nice little touch if you look away back at verse 5, the Bible actually tells you where Shelah was born. It doesn't tell you where the other sons were born, but particular Shelah. So it must be, uh, it must be significant that you're told that detail. It's a, a, a place called uh, Shethiv. And that is the word for deception. So, quite significant. Why would a town be called deception? Well, Jeremiah tells us about uh, a, 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 a place where you would see a, a wonderful, cool, refreshing stream flowing after the rain, a, a, a place where you feel, I've got to remember that, there's fresh, pure water there. That looks brilliant. And then the next time you go back, sweating, longing for a drink, it's bone dry. That's Shesif. That's deception. And, and possibly the name why a town would be given that name. So here's Judah, a man who's born in the line of blessing. God said through Abraham, I will bless the world. And he's at a place called Shesif. He's a bit like that river that should have been flowing with blessing, but was dried up because he had turned away from what God had told him to do. And now he, uh, at Shesiv, the son born at Shesiv, it becomes the deception. And of course, Satan is the father of lies. And it's his progressive power of sin that you see flowing through Genesis in destroying relationships and now destroying and breaking 
promises. So it's interesting. He tricks Tamar, tricks her into not marrying, tricks her into waiting, no intention, and she takes drastic action. The Bible doesn't say she was right in doing so. It just tells you that she did so. And old Judah certainly had a bad reputation. She knew that if she tempted him and pretended to be a prostitute, he was very likely to take the bait. Somehow, you know, you have to feel, well, how did she know that? She knew about him. Uh, there's always plenty of spies in the Old Testament. I was preaching this morning on some of the spies in Second Samuel. You know, the, uh, she knew what he was up to, and he knew what she was up to. They were all watching each other. And so she knew the sort of man he was, and she knew she could trick him. So she was told he's going to Timnah. There's a place called Timnah today that you can go to and see a full-sized version of the tabernacle. That's not this place. It's a different Timnah. Timnah was a place where they could shear the sheep. She took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and pretended to be a prostitute. He had tricked her. Now the tricky person was being tricked. That's not the first time that that happened in Genesis. Remember Jacob. He tricked his father. And then, some time later, he's getting married. And he thinks he's marrying Rachel, Rachel. But he's in the dark. Just like his father had been when he tricked him. Now the trickster is tricked, and he ends up marrying Leah. Instead of Rachel, the trickster gets tricked in Genesis on a number of occasions, and over time you could go through a number of other places where the trickster is tricked, you see. So, uh, the, and the deceiver is deceived. So, Tamar realized what was happening. Uh, he was like a deceitful brook, and she decided to deceive him who had deceived her. Again, names are quite significant. Uh, the uh, place that uh, it all happened is called Petachinayim. It, it means, uh, as the ESV has it, the entrance to the town of Enayim. That's the way the ESV does it. But if you take that literally, uh, Petach, entrance, it means opening, open. And Inayim means eyes. So there were actually, this was all happening at the place called Open Eyes. I think that's uh, interesting because uh, the, the place names in this chapter are given a significance. So Open Eyes reminds you of Genesis 3 again. The serpent said, Don't believe God. If you eat this fruit, your eyes will be open and you will know good and evil. So these are people who have open eyes. Uh, the deceiver is deceived. I think that's uh, very graphic, the way Genesis does it. The, the deceiver is deceived at the place of the opening of eyes. And uh, uh, it's uh, a warning to us, of course, that there are always eyes that are open, no matter 
whether he thought he was doing this in the dark, he thought he was doing this that nobody would ever find out. And there are many people like that today. Uh, when I started into a job in the factory in, in work study, um, the manager of the factory said to me, uh, I always tell my new uh, uh, people in the management team the same story. What you take out of it is up to you. And he says, this is the story. There was a man who had thrown up all restrictions, and he, he was well known as a thief, a liar, and all sorts of other things. And his wife became frustrated with him, and she said, Johnny, I don't think that you know the difference between right and wrong anymore. And he said, I do. You're wrong if you get caught. And that was to, that's the attitude of many people in the world today. What that manager was saying was, do your job any way you like, whatever way you please, just if you do anything uh, underhand, don't let me catch you, but uh, you know, you do it your way. Just don't get caught. What a way to run a business. But isn't that quite, I don't think he's the only one that works that way. Do what's right in your own eyes. But God's eyes are always open to what is happening. We cannot hide from him. Jesus said that what is done in the darkness will be shown in broad daylight. Uh, as Moses said, uh, Moses had a, a promise from some of the tribes about how they would help the other tribes. And uh, Moses said, well, do it. But if you break your promise, be sure your sin will find you out. And Judah's sin did find him out because Tamar took precautions, you see. She was pretty cunning in her deception. And she said, what will you pay me for being a prostitute? And he said, I will, bring you a, I will send a goat to you. And she said, well, I need, some, I need something to prove it. And so he gave her his signet, uh, a kind of probably a, uh, like a signet ring, only on a cord that you could identify yourself. Your driving license or your credit card might be something similar today. Uh, she wanted the cord, the staff, and a ring that may have looked something like this so that she would have proof of the person she had in a relationship with at the place of open eyes. And then, when Judah, who doesn't even deliver the animal himself, but gets somebody else to do his dirty work, he can't find her. And this is where the cover-up begins. Because people who sin, hoping not to be found out, they do not like it to, to come into light. And so, originally, when Judah saw her, he said, this is a zona. A zona is an ordinary prostitute. Now that they can't find her suddenly, he sends them to look for the Kedisha. It's translated sacred prostitute. Kadosh means holy. So it would be rather embarrassing to go looking and say, did anybody see the prostitute? Did anybody see the Zona? So they say and said, did anybody see the holy woman? It uh, 
plays the sin down a bit, doesn't it? You know what I mean? People like to do that. Oh, I, I, I know what I did was wrong, but you know me. It's just, it's just me. I, I, I didn't really mean it. I, I wasn't well at the time. And we make excuses. And so he makes excuses. He says, I thought it was a holy woman. A holy woman would have been uh, uh, holiness in this sense, in the Canaanite sense, meant someone who was separated to a Canaanite God, a person who was wholly devoted to the God. Not a, great, uh, not a great profession, mind you. It was still prostitution of a type. But it was better than an ordinary prostitute. He was covering up his sin. He was making his sin sound better. And we are good at that. I wouldn't call what I do gossip, actually. I'm, you know, I'm just, um, just curious. We have ways of making our sin sound that it's not too sinful. And so the cover-up was done. And uh, he just didn't want to get caught, basically, to be honest with you. So Judah replied, when they can't find her, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. Nobody likes to get laughed at, you see. Uh, You see, I sent her this young goat, and we did not find her. As John Wesley put it, he expresses no concern about the sin, only about the shame. He didn't want to be found out. And then to move quickly in the story, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. She is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. What a hypocrite! Burning was the most severe punishment. He had wronged her. He had tricked her. He had done everything against this lady, assuming that she was the one who had caused the death of his two earlier sons, and she wasn't. God did that. But he blamed Tamar. And now he says, let her be burned. Stoning was the usual uh, death for uh, prostitution, but he was absolutely vicious in his hypocrisy. Let her be burned. So what has that got to do with the custard cream? Well, let me tell you a story about the custard cream. Uh, this uh, the, a person told me this that they had uh, uh, this uh, person had a job in the summertime uh, to uh, taught in a college, and in the summertime it was his job to uh, go around places where students were on placement and check how they were getting on and talk to the person in charge. You know this sort of thing. And so he went to this manse and met a minister, and they sat down. You can imagine the scene, the coffee table, a little tray of uh, custard creams and coffee, and they're talking about the student. And just before they uh, get going, uh, the the friend who was visiting picked up a custard cream and put it in his mouth, whereupon the minister put his hand up and said, Hold it! Hang on, what are you doing? We haven't said grace. You see, and gave him a very stern rebuke. 
And then this person told me, and he says, three months later, that minister ran off with the organist. <laughs> Hypocrisy, you see. You see, it's easy to see somebody else's sin. He didn't... Uh, he, he, he complained about uh, eating a custard cream without saying grace, but it was okay to run off with the organist. It's always easy to point out. Uh, and didn't Jesus say the Pharisees were a bit like that? That they could see the little sins of other people, and all along they couldn't see the big sins that they were committing themselves. So Judah was then a hypocrite. But Tamar was able, it's a great story this, Tamar, uh, you know, a bit after 10 type of story, but it's a great story. She was able to turn the tables, and she was able to produce his uh, ring and all the rest of it and prove that he was the guilty one. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. You would say he was caught red-handed. I wondered where that phrase, red-handed, had come from. And apparently, it was uh, a, a, a phrase that came uh, way back in the, uh, during the 15th century when it was used to describe someone capturing a murderer who still had blood on his hands. In other words, there was no excuse. He was caught red-handed in his sin. Uh, so in this story, look at the things that had happened. Judah proposed selling his brother. He entered a forbidden marriage. He broke his promises. He tried to hide his sin, and he was guilty of cruel hypocrisy. Um, but he didn't try to hide this time. He confesses his sin. And you know, this seems to be a great turning point in the life of Judah. The next time you hear about him, he is a changed person. In chapter 43, uh, don't worry, Simon, I'm not going to take all your future chapters, but if you, if, you, if you look at chapter 43, Judah's a different person. His father, Jacob, is very concerned about losing his young son, Benjamin, just as Judah had tried to protect his young son, Shelah. Now, Jacob is trying to protect his young son, and Judah says, look, I will stand pledge for him. And later on, when Benjamin is to be taken away from the brothers, Judah says to Joseph, in a very long and detailed speech that turns the whole story around, he says, listen, take me instead. He's a changed person. And so that is the turning point in the story. So how does this all fit into Genesis? Well, we've got this great theme of sin destroys. But this line of Judah was redeemed by God. And the theme that we have is identified like this, sin destroys, but grace restores. And that takes us right back to that most important of verses in Genesis chapter 3, 15. Right at the start, God says that he will give victory to the promised seed who would come. 
You know the sort of program that follows genealogies through you uh, uh, and uh, the importance of it. And in this, Genesis is indeed looking for the promised seed that would bruise the serpent's head. The promise to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, That uh, promise had many obstacles to it. But that was the promise that God made. Your seed, from your line, your offspring, the offspring is called seed in Genesis, your seed will change the world. And you know, I just want another little aside here, just to remind you of one of the greatest archaeological discoveries. It's a massive stone. You see it there? 12 foot high. You can see compared to the person there. It's in Cairo Museum. And do you see there's a bit that's been read more than any other right at the very bottom there? It's slightly darker. That's the bit. This stone was created in 1207 BC. We've got the exact date. It was set up by a pharaoh who described how he had done wonderful things all around the world. And in that little black bit at the bottom, he says, Israel has no seed left. (laughs) I just thought, I I, I can't resist putting that up. When we're told that through Abraham, your seed will inherit the earth, The first time you read Israel outside the Bible, Pharaoh says, they've got no seed left. And he didn't mean seed for growing things. He meant offspring in the same way that Genesis does. So all along, the enemy was there fighting against the promises of God. God said the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. The serpent wasn't lying sleeping about this. He was working too. The devil was at work trying to, in his own way, destroy the seed. And so Genesis becomes the family tree You've heard the the program, Who Do You Think You Are? Well, Genesis is a who do you think you are. Who is the promised seed is what Genesis is about. And there's lots of choices. When Cain is born, you have to think to yourself, Cain must be the promised seed. Then Abel is born, and Cain murders him and kind of rules them both out. And then Eve says... God has given me another seed again, using that word for offspring. God has given me another seed, and she called his name Seth. So it wasn't Cain, the promise to Abraham. It wasn't Cain or Abel, but Seth. It wasn't Ham or Japheth. It was Shem. You're on the search. When you're going through Genesis, you're looking to see who will it be. It's not Terah, but Abraham. It's not Ishmael, but Isaac. It's not Esau, but Jacob. It's not Reuben, but Joseph and Judah. And that's why you've got this chapter, to show you that these people through whom God brought his promises, they were in a bit of a mess themselves. They were people who were living in a world that we live in, a world that is tainted and ruined by sin. They weren't chosen by God because they were perfect. They were chosen by God because He is sovereign and He makes choices. And so the family tree of the Messiah 
in Matthew chapter 1 includes the most unlikely people. Only one son of Jacob is mentioned by name, Judah. So you see how this chapter is important because the, two, the, 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 the firstborn of Jacob was Reuben. He was ruled out. Simeon and Levi were ruled out as the channel of God's blessing. And you needed to say, who's it going to be now? Joseph becomes the one who gets the blessing of the firstborn. And Joseph is the ancestor of the tribes of Israel in the north. And Judah gets the blessing for the son who would be the one through whom God would send a king. And in the later chapters of Genesis, we're told the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And so Judah is needed in this chapter to point you towards the Messiah and to show that even that line of seed and all the sin, that grace won in the end. And women are not usually mentioned in these genealogies. But isn't it just wonderful that Tamar, after all she went through, is mentioned in Matthew's gospel? And so is Ruth as well. So in a wonderful way, the search in Genesis is looking for who is the seed of the Messiah. And as I, I bring this to a close, let me try and apply some of this to us today. It shows that out of a terrible mess, God brought redemption. Uh, nobody can stand up today and say, well, well you know, nobody knows what, what I've done. I, I'm too bad to be saved. Not when you look at the terrible mess that Judah got into. And yet, you know, if you were making a choice of the best people in Genesis, you would make different choices. But God chose people who were sinners, people who did not deserve His grace to bring about redemption. And so God, uh, you know, uh, God can use you and me. He used imperfect people. I am relieved that God just didn't look for perfect people. God didn't just look for the best of people. God used people that were failures, that were imperfect. People who made mistakes, God used. Oh, thank God he did that, because it means that he can use you. It means that he can use me, because I make many mistakes. But God is able to use people who have made mistakes, because he is the one that while sin was on the rampage, God was watching it all the time. There are times in the book of Genesis you would feel, why doesn't God do something? God seems a bit absent while all this stuff is going on, doesn't he? But you notice this in the Bible, that at the very times when you think it looks as if God is doing nothing. <laughs> Those are the times when he is working his greatest acts. The babies were being thrown in the river. God was raising a deliverer. Best example of all, when Jesus was on the cross of Calvary, many people would say, why doesn't God do something? And God was doing something. 
And you know, in our lives, there are times when it's not just so easy, and we go through times when God seems a bit hidden. But remember this. When God's hidden, He's not absent. He's there. He knows. He knows your feelings. He knows your anxiety. He knows your fears. And He says, trust me, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, As Paul put it to sum all this up as we close, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, when people were in harmony with God, he blessed them. When they were out of harmony with God, he cursed them. He cursed the serpent. He cursed the ground. He cursed Cain. When people were out of harmony with God, they got cursed. And then Jesus, hanging on the tree, became cursed for you and for me so that we might know nothing of the curse, but that all our sins might be washed away. You know, that's a wonderful thing. We cannot change the past. Do you know, you could live your life looking back with regrets. You could live your life saying, I wish I hadn't done that, or I wish that hadn't happened. You could live your life looking over your shoulder all the time, saying, I wish, I wish, I wish. You can't change the past, but with God's help, and through what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary, we can change the future. And you can come tonight, if you don't know him, and put your faith in the one who died on the cross and took the curse for you and entered into the family of those who are following on from Abraham in the channel of blessing, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Don't dwell on the past. Don't live in the past. Don't spend your time regretting the past. Commit it to the grace of God. Commit it to the one who shed his blood on the cross, because there's power in that blood to forgive the past, to forgive the sins, and to change the future so that one day we will meet again and praise God for the one who bruised the serpent's head. Amen. Amen. A hard chapter. But anyway, a great story of redemption. Our God is alive today. And we can put our faith in the one who shed his blood for you and for me. Let us sing our closing hymn, which what better theme could we look at than that great? Yes, sin is a powerful theme, but grace is greater than sin. And the amazing grace of God has covered my sin. Hallelujah. What a Savior.
our Father, we thank you for the power in the blood of the Lamb to cleanse from sin. We thank you for the wonderful grace of God that we can stand tonight, sinners saved by grace. And we will never face the consequences of that curse because we know the one who brought the blessing through what he has done. And so we pray that tonight we would indeed be filled with the joy of blessing in our hearts, knowing that we leave here tonight, that we do not leave you. You will go with us wherever we go until that day, until the darkness breaks away and the morning comes and we see Jesus all together. We will praise him for all eternity for amazing grace. Amen.